0: I'm just going to read to you now from God's Word. Just getting used to this new mic. I keep on trying to pull a wee bit away, and I've got to keep on remembering it's actually stuck on, so I can't get away from it. So anyway, Luke chapter 1 from verse 26, and we read that in the sixth month, God sent the Abel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin Pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the Lord said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to you as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul praises the Lord. to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Let's just come and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the many ways in which you bless us. We want to thank you that we, like Mary, are highly favored because you give to us all that we need. And above all, you bless us so abundantly in Jesus, your gift to us. Father, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, for the fact that he opens up all the treasures of heaven to your people. Lord, help us not just at Christmas, but every day of our lives to rejoice and be glad in what is ours in Jesus Christ. This we pray now. In His precious name, Amen. <clears throat> you know, it seems like there are a growing number of people around today who are very eager to tell you that far from being from Christmas being a happy, joyous time, the happiest time of the year, that to the contrary, they hate Christmas. Now, is some of these people? Those whose life circumstances make Christmas a sad, even a lonely time. I have great sympathy. But then I read the story of Jenny R that she put up on the internet. Jenny R doesn't have children and so she finds it stressful to be at big family gatherings where children are present. In fact, in, in her words, it is Total chaos, with crying and fighting kids and dogs barking and running everywhere. So this year, as she has now done for a number of years, Jenny is opting out and going on a yoga retreat in the Bahamas. To compensate, she is organizing uh, an adult's only family gathering later in the year. My response to this is Jenny get over yourself. <laughs> what a fun auntie you are. In the words of what used to be a popular saying in my youth hanging is too good for the likes of you. <laughs> it's a good stiff kick to the backside that you are needed, But I understand why many of the people who say they hate Christmas are reaching that conclusion. Because it's not so much that they hate Christmas itself, that the reason for the celebration, but it's rather, I think, that they hate what Christmas has become. They hate the frenzied Christmas shopping. They hate the incessant Christmas music. As the lady serving me in boots the other day so eloquently put it, they put that on as soon as I came in in the morning, and it's doing my nut in. <laughs> <coughs> also, people hate what they see as so often the hypocrisy of Christmas. we say people want the, the perfect Christmas because they want to project the image that they are The perfect little family with no problems at all, when in fact the reality is, for all of us, to one degree or another, that that's just not the case. You know, I think most of us, maybe not to the same extent as some, but we feel something the same about the trappings and the excess of Christmas. But you see, I believe that the answer to this is a proper understanding. Of Christmas, what it's all actually about, so that we can feel about Christmas, and then following that, celebrate Christmas in the kind of positive and joyous way that I believe that we should. So let's look then at how we should feel, how we can feel when we get our focus right at Christmas. And to help us to do that, I want us here to to look at the example. Of Mary and her reaction to the news of that first Christmas, to the announcement that was made to her of the arrival of the Messiah, that she was to be the mother of the Son of God. But before we move on to look at Mary's emotional response to this, her feelings about this, let's first look at something else. That is, let's look at what her feelings were based on and what our feelings also need to be based on if we too are going to be saved from our feelings leading us into the kind of distorted thinking and distorted living as a result of that that's now become the norm in the world we live in today. Let's look then at that indispensable foundation for the Christian's feelings. Let's look at Mary's faith. For for don't we see here a wonderful example of faith in Mary's calm acceptance of of Gabriel's message, despite the fact that what he shared with her was seen as as something that, that would be totally unimaginable. For a Jew, I mean a Greek or a Roman teenager uh, of this time with their many gods and their myths and their fables of relationships and alliances between the gods and mankind, they could be expected to take this kind of thing in their stride. But not a Jewess. Not someone brought up as Mary had been. You see, she'd been brought up to see God as all-powerful, as mighty and mysterious, as distant. So for her, the thought of God being born of a woman, being born of, actually being human flesh, this would, this should have been for her totally incomprehensible. And yet, as this message comes to Mary from God, She's able to take hold of it. She's able to submit to it, to believe it. And you see, Mary did this, knowing that this message, that what God was to do would prove incredibly costly to her. I mean, in verse 34, we read Mary says, How will this be, she asked the angel, since I am still a virgin. Now, here Mary's expressing something of, of her amazement at what's being said to her. Something of her sense of the, the sheer human impossibility of what's being suggested. But don't you think that she would know? Don't you think that it wouldn't cross her mind how others might react to this who'd not had this same kind of revelation? I hardly think so. And very soon in the reaction of Joseph, Good and godly man that he was who wanted to shame Mary as little as possible and yet still to get rid of her, to break off their betrothal. Well, don't we we see here, don't we catch something of a foretaste, of the kind of reaction of those who would never, ever believe what Mary claimed. Those who would always laugh and snigger and point behind her back. So you see, as Mary Believe God's word to her that first Christmas time she showed faith. She showed remarkable, astounding faith. And precisely the same kind of way we too are called to have faith this Christmas. We're called to have faith. But we perhaps have extra obstacles in a sense to overcome in this area. Even more than Mary. Because simply of the way that our culture seems to continually now seek to attack and undermine faith. Faith was accepted in Mary's time but not in our day. You know, we're continually being told that to have a true biblical faith is to be naive, unsophisticated, that you have to be at least a little bit simple. And you know, All of this, this kind of criticism, this kind of attack is is given a bit of an extra bite when comments sometimes come from those who claim to be within the church that that back that kind of thinking up, like say, I know I've quoted him before because he's a friend of mine, David Jenkins, the the one-time Bishop of Durham, who famously said once, that he didn't believe in the virgin birth, that he didn't believe in the three wise men. To be blunt, he said that he doesn't believe in the Christmas story at all. That he sees all of this, in his words, as a myth. Now, when we hear these these kind of comments, maybe our immediate reaction to them might be that of of kind of laughter, just write it off, or, or maybe anger, we get angry when we hear somebody who's supposed to be a leader in the church, say things like this. But you know what, I think for many Christians that these kind of things, as they're said, have a kind of drip, drip effect. They do, they eat away, corrosive effect on faith. And because the Christmas story is, let's face it, so fantastic, so absolutely out of this world, incredible, so these kind of comments, they begin to cause those nagging doubts that just gradually eat away at the fabric of faith. Now, that that being the case, let me just very briefly try and deal with some of the criticisms that are sometimes made of, of Christmas faith. In fact, I want to deal with them by just zeroing in on the central criticism that's made. And that is that this story is a myth. And where you need to begin here when you hear that word is by understanding that when a professional theologian today, and that's what David Jenkins was, when they say that something is a myth, he doesn't mean by that that it's an out-and-out lie. He doesn't mean even that it's some kind of fairy story. Now, what he means by that is that this is a symbolic story that's designed to get across a spiritual point. But with no actual basis in fact, in history, in reality. So, for instance, the Christmas story, it might be said to, to be designed to show us that God did something special in Jesus. Indeed, that, that Jesus is special. But Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, many would say, no. And the virgin birth, well, certainly not. And as far as the actual details of of this story being accurate, you know, the wise men and their gifts, the shepherds bringing their worship, the star in the sky and the presence of the angels, well, it would be said that these things are just ridiculous. They're preposterous. Now, this story is just a myth. And the gospel writers, they intended it to be seen in that kind of way. Indeed, it said, they would be amazed that that any, except the most terribly stupid and naive, should see this story as fact. Well, the first thing that I believe has to be said to this in reply is that amazing though this might be, and it is, yet the facts are that the vast majority of believers have seen this story as truth, as fact, in every detail throughout the history of the church, right down through the centuries. And not only that, but it seems to me to be clear that the gospel writers, those who wrote the gospels, intended it to be seen in this way. That they saw themselves as retelling actual events, things that happened, rather than inventing some kind of elaborate myth. I mean, just take for... For example, Luke, the writer of the gospel that this episode here forms part of. Now Luke is known, widely known, to be a historian. He's known to be a man with a a feel for history, someone with a, a passion for history, and with a great desire always to be historically accurate. And so because of this, many historians today, not just biblical historians but out-and-out out secular historians with no faith whatsoever. Among these men, Luke, the writer of the gospel, because of his care for detail, and particularly in the book of Acts, his companion book, Luke is known among many as the greatest of all ancient historians. Never... In all the details and the facts that he presents in his writings shown once to be wrong in anything he tells us, any of the historical detail, not once. Well, you see, this look at the beginning of his gospel, he assures us that he has carefully checked his sources and that his account is accurate and reliable. He sets his reputation on it. Verse 3 and 4, chapter 1. Therefore, he says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then Luke goes into all sorts of meticulous detail. About the the timing of mary 's miraculous pregnancy, her cousin elizabeth 's miraculous pregnancy, the timing in relation to one another, and then finally, to top all this off, she fixes both of these events against a known and fixed fact in the history recorded history of the ancient world in Chapter one and two, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be done in the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. He fixes it against this recorded historical fact. So you see, there was no way that Luke thought that what he was writing was any kind of myth or some kind of spiritual theory story. As far as Luke was concerned, what he wrote was based on fact. Hard, identifiable fact. Now we could go into all sorts of other ins and outs here. But but really in the end, what it all boils down to is that the gospel writers were absolutely convinced that what they were writing was true and later on many of them proved how much they believed this to be true by being willing to die for it now you see you don't do that for a myth you don't do that for some kind of airy fairy principle that maybe you've dreamed up you don't do that you only die are prepared to die for something you believe in With all your heart. Now I ask you. Do you think the former. Bishop of Durham. And others like him. Do you think they would die. For what they believe in. Do you think he was so convinced of it. That it meant so much to him. Well you can't be sure. But I don't think so. Because you see. His kind of faith isn't the faith that's been tested and proved true through the centuries and the fires of persecution. That kind of faith isn't the faith that's been handed down to the church from the fathers. No, that kind of faith is the the flabby pseudo-faith of an apathetic church that has lost its way. A church that's today forgotten what truth and falsehood really is. That's forgotten what it actually really believes or, in fact, should believe. Now, I I want to say, having said all this, of course, it does take faith. It takes real faith, great faith, to believe that God became a man. That takes faith. That's astounding. It takes faith. To believe all of the other details that are part of this story. And there's a lot we can find from other sources. There's a lot in ancient documents. There's a lot in wider recorded history, I believe, that backs all this up. And especially what it does and how it transforms a human heart and life. But in the end, it does take faith. Real faith. It takes big faith to believe the Christmas story but that's the faith God asks of his people. That was the faith of Mary. And that's the faith God continues to call us to today. But let's move on from this now to, to look at what emerged from this faith. Let's look now at Mary's feelings. Now, there are a number of different things that we could actually look at here that revolve around the idea of Mary's feelings. For instance, Mary's humility. That is the fact that our song that in her song of praise to God at the end of the reading that we had, that in this, he, and never she, is always at the center of all that Mary says. She never even mentions herself once by name. Never once. She's totally focused on God. Now contrast this with too many Christians today. Who, and it can only, I think, be because of pride, are so concerned about themselves that they take offense so easily and are so reluctant to forgive and let go. They are the center of their own world. And you know how we in our day need to take heed to Paul's command in Philippians 2, verse 3. He said, There in humility, consider others better than yourself, don't be proud. But care and put others before yourself. However, having said that, what I believe needs to be emphasised most of all as we think for a moment about Mary's feelings is on that first Christmas, what we see above all is Mary's joy. Mary's joy. You know, I think this is a good time to talk about joy and to talk about Christian joy particularly. Because apart from the fact that many of us I know are shattered because we've been doing all sorts of different things and we're thinking of all we've got to do in the future and we're exhausted by it. But apart from all of this, most of us at this time of the year probably feel about as happy now as we ever do at any time of the year. It's all about family, all about children, all the different programs are on, different things happening around. So today, we feel maybe As if God really loves us. Today we feel it. And we feel as if we love him. And today we would say. We are joyous. We are joyous. And we are ready to rejoice in the Lord. But I want to set that in context. Have there not been in the past year. And there surely will be in all probability. In the coming year. Have there not been those other times those times when things are going wrong in our lives, those times when our inclination is perhaps to feel that God in some way is letting us down and that he doesn't really love us because he wouldn't let us go through this if he did. Aren't there those times when because of of what's going on in our life and life around us, when we feel far from God, we feel distant from God and when we certainly do not feel like rejoicing in God so what does that say then about our joy what even does that say about us what does it say about us is this the way things should be for the Christian well let's look again at Mary's example here and while there is a thread of joy I believe that runs through everything that Mary says here, and indeed everything that's said to her, I think, I believe that it's in verse 48 and 49, that there we find the foundation on which Mary's joy is based. Verse 48 and 49, where she says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. Do you see, do you see here that Mary's joy rests not on her circumstances, rests not on how her life is going for her at that specific moment in time or any moment in time, but rather Mary's joy rests on who God is, the mighty one. Holy is his name. And on what God has done, the mighty one has done great things for me. Now you see, that's the kind of joy that is an anchor in life. That's the kind of joy that sustains us through life, no matter what life might bring. The kind of joy that rests before anything else on who God is the great, the mighty, the holy, the loving God and rests on what he has done for us. The salvation, the new life, the eternal life that he's won for us in Jesus Christ and that is his gift to us through faith in Jesus Christ. See, this is the kind of joy that is there When life's circumstances are good. When humanly speaking, we are happy. When everything's going well for us and life is lovely and rosy. But it's also the kind of joy that is there when that is not the case. It's the joy that holds us up when the world crumbles around us. That carries us through when humanly our hearts are breaking. The trouble with too many Christians though is that here we put the cart before the proverbial horse. We try to make the incidentals into the substance for we make the basis of our joy not who God is, not what he has done but rather it is our circumstances. It all rests on how things are going for me Today, And you see, in a world that is a spiritual battleground, and it is, where God, though triumphant, is still involved in a real spiritual conflict with the powers of evil, when that's the case, that leads to a very up-and-down Christian experience. Because we are God's front line in this spiritual battle. And we're bound to get hit at. We're bound to suffer in this battle. And if we expect otherwise, if we expect our life as a Christian, because we're a Christian, always to be a breeze and we base our joy on experiencing that, then I say to you, we are going to be sorely disappointed. And it should then be no great surprise if pretty often we are on a spiritual downer. So... How should we feel at Christmas? How should we feel this Christmas? (coughs) Like Mary. We should be rejoicing. We should be joyous. But if that's going to be the case, let's make sure that our joy is centered on the right things. I mean, let's enjoy the season. Let's enjoy everything that goes on with that, let's not despise in any way the happy times that are parcel and part and parcel of that because they are God's gift to us. But at the same time, let's not base our lives, let's not base our joy on them because these things truly are shifting sand. Rather, let's base our joy. Let's base our Christian faith today on that solid rock of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Let's come to God now in prayer. Father, you know that we are flesh. Your spirit lives within us, but we still live in this body of flesh. And because of that, that's the way the devil again and again attacks us through our flesh. He seeks to influence us to put ourselves and our physical needs at the center of our lives to make these what's most important rather than what's most important being who you are and what you have done and the fact that you're at work in our lives, that we're yours for all eternity, that nothing can take us from your hands. Father, we pray, help us to get the focus right this Christmas. Help us to be focused on you. Focus on Jesus. Focused on how you have blessed us in him. This we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.